1: The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. On October 31st, the US Supreme Court will hear two cases, Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina and Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard College. Both of these cases involve challenges to the consideration of race in the admissions process. In 2003, the Supreme Court decided in Greta v. Bollinger and held that race could be considered in the university admissions process as part of an effort to obtain a diverse student body. That ruling was reaffirmed in 2016 in Fisher v. The University of Texas. The plaintiff, which is the same organization in both cases, is asking the court to overrule these decisions and prohibit any consideration of race in the college and university admissions process. On tonight's show, we're gonna talk about affirmative action in the college admissions process, the cases pending before the court, and the consequences if the Supreme Court rules against UNC and Harvard. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Vinay Harpalani. He is a professor of law at the University of New Mexico School of Law. Professor Harpalani, thank you so much for joining us this evening.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. So you have written extensively and spoken extensively about affirmative action, uh, especially in the university admissions process. Can you tell us when and why you became interested in this topic?
2: Sure. Uh, So, I would say, really, it stems back to uh, my childhood, you know, looking at it broadly, uh, growing up in Newcastle County, Delaware, during the era of comprehensive school desegregation. I went to school with, you know, busing, and not just busing, but busing between inner city and suburbs, which was, you know, court-ordered. So... I had a lot of experiences uh, with respect to race uh, growing up, which I didn't think about growing up. You know, I was a South Asian American of Asian Indian background, one of very few people of my background growing up in that environment. Observed a lot of things, but didn't really think about them. You know, We didn't talk about them in school. So I was kind of primed. Uh, and then as I came of age in the 1990s, that's when the challenges to affirmative action really began. So it was all kind of a, a confluence of factors. Uh, at first, I was kind of an activist on the issue because you mentioned the, the Grutter case. Uh, that's right when I was in, in graduate school, uh, 1997. That case was filed, Supreme Court decided in 2003. So there was activism around that case that I became involved in. Uh, you know, I completed my PhD, uh, went on to law school, and I was primed to look at this issue. It was something I had background in. So when I decided to become a law professor, it was the logical thing for me to write about. And then the Fisher cases came up in the early you know, 2010s, 2013, 2016. So the fact that the case, uh, the issue keeps coming back before the Supreme Court also really primed me to write about it as a law professor. You know, it's my background, but it was also something that just kept coming up, you know. And it's one of those hot button issues that I think, you know, the general public has some idea of, which is not true for a lot of legal issues.
1: So for those who don't know about these cases, can you share some of the basic facts about um, both of these cases? And then we'll talk about the, the similarities and the, the differences between them as we get into it um, a little bit more.
2: Sure. Uh, so the Harvard case uh, has gotten the most attention. As, uh, as you said, April, there's an ironically named organization Students for Fair Admissions, which is bringing that case Uh, The plaintiffs kind of a a group of students. We don't know who they are. They are anonymous. They just go by students for fair admissions. But at least one of them is an Asian American uh, applicant to Harvard who was rejected, who apparently had like perfect test scores, really high grades, really good extracurricular activities, but didn't get into Harvard. Uh, So the Harvard case has really focused on Asian Americans. Uh, Asian American plaintiffs have been a large part of the discourse in that case. The first part of SFFA's argument in the Harvard case, essentially what they say is Asian Americans are discriminated against in admissions in comparison to white Americans. It's not even a challenge to affirmative action that benefits uh, black, Latino, Native American students. The first part is just uh, Harvard is discriminating against Asian Americans. The second part is actually the challenge to affirmative action. Uh, to, you know, uh, raise conscious admissions policies. And they try to link the two together uh, in different ways, uh, basically saying Asian Americans are discriminated against, respect the white Americans, but also the affirmative action uh, policies discriminate against them. So uh, the Harvard case really focuses on Asian Americans. Uh, another uh, distinction is that Harvard is a private university. So that lawsuit relies on Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, the U- University of North Carolina case It's kind of more like uh, prior affirmative action challenges, basically says University of North Carolina does not use race in a constitutional way, in the way that uh, Grutter and Fisher said it should be used uh, in uh, race conscious admissions policies. Uh, So uh, University of North Carolina, more similar to the prior cases, focuses on the uh, Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, uh, University of North Carolina being a public university, uh, not focused on Asian Americans quite as much, you know, as the broad, broad plethora of, of uh, plaintiffs, uh, different groups represented. Uh, so Harvard has gotten a lot more attention, but the Supreme Court uh, decided to uh, uh, hear the cases together. At first, they were consolidated, then they were broken up, uh, but they'll be heard on the same day, uh, October 31st.
0: Can you uh, just kind of talk about the what is affirmative action Sure. Uh, and what is this uh, intent and what are the contour of that uh, in the uh, admissions process?
2: Sure, Uh, because I think, you know, uh, may not be a great understanding of this in the public. So affirmative action broadly, very broadly is, uh, you know, policies that are designed uh, to increase the representation of underrepresented uh, groups, Uh, active efforts to do that, including recruitment, uh, including a, a lot of other things, access, admissions is just one part of it. That's broadly what it is. In common parlance, you know, public and, and a lot of discourse, the uh, term affirmative action has been used specifically to refer to the use of race in admissions. So, uh, you know, more narrowly, it's this issue that's going up before the Supreme Court. Now, what the Supreme Court has said in the past uh, in Grutter dating back even before that, uh, you know, Justice Powell's opinion in the Bakke case back in 1978, but really Grutter and Fisher are the kind of the modern framework. Uh, uh, You know, you typically may think of affirmative action as kind of remedying past wrongs, past discrimination, and maybe even current discrimination. Supreme Court has said that's not the justification for affirmative action university admissions. The justification, the constitutional justification, the compelling interest that justifies these policies is diversity in education. Having people of different backgrounds uh, in the classroom has educational benefits uh, for uh, everyone, for all students, for white students, uh, for Black, Latino, Native American students. So it's really the fact that you have students of different backgrounds having conversations, learning from each other. uh, And also, uh, we need diverse leaders uh, uh, for the global economy. uh, representation in leadership positions after after college, after uh, uh, education, uh, but it's about diversity. That is the compelling interest. Uh, the court has also talked about how race can be used in the admissions process, and it's basically rejected any mechanical use of race. So the Bakke case, 1978, said you cannot have set-asides. You can't set aside, in that case, 16 seats in the uh, University of California Davis Medical School. You can't set aside 16 seats for minority students out of 100. No set aside. You also cannot use a point system. That was the Gradsby-Bollinger case that was heard along with Bruder, the University of Michigan undergraduate case. So if you have like a 150 point scale on which you're rating students, you can't assign 20 students to all underrepresented minority students. What you have to do, and this is what Grutter said, is on an individualized basis in the admissions process, you can consider a student's race, but it has to be very individualized it has to be flexible. You know, some students may benefit a lot. You know, for some uh, underrepresented minority student, you may say race matters a lot here because of their experiences, because of the type of diversity they'll bring. For another underrepresented minority student, it may only matter a little bit or not at all. That's what the process has to look like. It has to be flexible. Race is just one factor alongside all kinds of other factors. You know, where the student is from, their socioeconomic background, what their extracurricular activities are. Uh, so it's really, you know, because race is used so flexibly, and I think this is this is important, you don't really know for any particular applicant whether race is being considered or not. Uh, so it's very individualized, but that also makes these types of lawsuits a little easier because if the court had said, you know, 20 points is okay on a 150-point scale, we can kind of figure out whether university is using 20 points or whether they're doing more or less. But this individualized thing, you know, uh, it's a little harder to assess whether they're using race too much and the court has also said, you know, using race, it can't be a predominant factor. It can't cause an undue burden to non quote unquote non-preferred students. Um, so that is kind of the legal contour of race conscious university admissions.
0: Well, f- well, following up on on that, and I'm just trying to you know, provide some clarity for, for myself mm-hmm. and for our audience. Uh, one would think that uh, affirmative action then would benefit uh, Asian American students and how then, does it uh, factually create a conflict in the Harvard case that uh, the Asian uh, students are being discriminated uh, against in favor of other uh, minorities?
2: Yes, you know, it's it's a great question. Some complexities there, and, and probably we should say off the top that there are certain Asian American groups that may benefit under particular circumstances. Now, when you consider race in a very individualized way, uh, you know, universities, the court doesn't talk about which groups you can consider. Uh, you know, it's for more diversity. So Asian-Americans say Southeast uh, Asian-Americans um, are not as well represented at elite universities. Uh, university might consider them, uh, you know, uh, in their affirmative action program in terms of using race. Other groups also are not well represented. But there's also what's called the model minority stereotype of Asian-Americans. You, know, you see Asian-Americans achieving very highly. Uh, well represented at places like Harvard, uh, what is it? 25% of the student body is of Asian American descent. Even though in the U.S. population, something like only 4% uh, of the U.S. population is Asian Americans, it's rapidly growing. Uh, so is the population of elite universities. So there's this idea that you know Asian Americans are doing really well, uh, and that uh, you know don't need affirmative action to uh, to succeed. Don't need any uh, uh, consideration of race. Uh, this high performance by Asian Americans—it's a real phenomenon. You look at the average test scores and grades; Asian American applicants do have uh, higher test scores and grades, and uh, the admitted students also have higher test scores and grades than uh, uh, other groups. Uh, number of reasons for that that uh, you know have come out in the case. Uh, but this whole idea of Asian Americans as the model minority—part of that just goes back to U.S. immigration policy back in the 1960s. We needed more scientists, uh, doctors. <laughs> Computer professionals in this country, because we were fighting the Cold War, you know, afraid that the Soviet Union was getting ahead of us. Uh, at the same time, China, India, Korea had a large number of uh, engineers, scientists who didn't have the same opportunities in their countries. So, you know, we opened up immigration, uh, gave preference to educated professionals, scientific professionals. They came over, you know, and you know their children had a different uh, experience. At home. You know, they they were growing up in educated home environments. Um, and uh, we're more prone, more kind of uh, primed to become high achievers. So a lot happened here. In the 1980s, and we can go into this a bit more, there were allegations that, you know, universities didn't want their campuses to quote, unquote, look too foreign as the number of Asian Americans uh, was it, were increasing. So there and, and there's resentment, some backlash from students also. So there's a very large historical context uh, to all of this. <laughs>
1: And so that that raises the question. We know that um, there is a discrimination going on when it comes to Asian Americans, and and we'll you know be able to do a deeper dive into this. And it's well, let me back up for a minute before we get into that. Can we talk a little bit about the plaintiff organization because I think that provides kind of the framework for why it is that we have. Uh, these cases in the first place where you have um, a group that that has historically and continues to be discriminated against, kind of being pitted against other minority groups who need to uh, be able to utilize frameworks like affirmative action. And so we've got the Students for Fair Admissions, as you noted, that's an ironic name for this organization. Can you talk a little bit about what this organization does and 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 why we're here?
2: Uh, sure. Uh, there's a, a individual, Edward Blum, who has really been around uh, the recent efforts to challenge and eliminate uh, affirmative action. He was behind the Fisher litigation also against the University mm-hmm. of, of Texas. Uh, and then when that uh, didn't work, when the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action, the focus has been on the Harvard and uh, University of North Carolina cases, although those were filed even before Fisher ended. Uh, so, uh, you know, this organization, that's uh, students for Fair Admissions, that is that is their whole goal. The movement, really the organized movement to challenge affirmative action, galvanized in the 1990s. And that's, you know, I told you, that's kind of when I uh, started my activism around the issue. Uh, so they very strategically choose who their plaintiffs are. Uh, in the Michigan cases, it was two white women, um, Fisher also, Abigail Fisher. Asian Americans, a group that has been discriminated against. So there's sympathy there. And especially the first part of the argument uh, is just about Asian Americans being discriminated against with respect to white Americans. No justification to that. You know, white Americans are, are you know the most advantaged group. Why would you favor them over Asian Americans? The whole strategy is to uh, really to create sympathy for the plaintiffs. White women were also you know discriminated against, disadvantaged historically. Um, so that is kind of their whole strategy. You know, this is very strategic litigation, and it's really focused on eliminating race-conscious admissions. Mm-hmm.
1: All right. You are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about two cases that will be heard before the Supreme Court in October. We have SFFA versus the University of North Carolina and the same organization versus Harvard College. And these cases challenge a university's ability to consider race in the admissions process. We have with us here in our Zoom studio a scholar who has written and spoken extensively about affirmative action in the university setting. He is Dr. Vinay Harpalani. He is a professor of law at the University of New Mexico School of Law. We're going to have to take a quick break but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back.
3: North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology, Law, and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology, Law, and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking this hour with Dr. Vinay Harpalani. He is a professor of law at the University of New Mexico School of Law. And we've been talking this hour about affirmative action in the university, college and university admissions process. Um, Dr. Harpalani, can you talk about The need for affirmative action. So, you have kind of broken down what that looks like. Um, And maybe the question is do you think that there is a need for it in higher education and what's the benefit that flows from that?
2: Absolutely. Uh, You know, I think there is a greater need uh, than is currently being met. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the court, as I I noted, has said educational benefits of diversity uh, are the justification for affirmative action. But I think you know we need remedial affirmative action. Also, you know, Black, Latino, uh, Indigenous students face a lot of challenges, a lot of barriers. Uh, you know, don't go to schools that have the same resources, face discrimination uh, in society in many different ways. So the need, I think, is beyond uh, what is happening. You know, what the universities are allowed to do uh, right now. And all of those groups that I mentioned—Black, Latino, Native American students—are underrepresented. You know, if you look at the percentages at elite universities lower than what you find in the general population. Uh, And, uh, you know, for a number of reasons, I think for society more broadly to be more equitable, we need these policies. Uh, The educational benefits of diversity are certainly there, you know, people of different backgrounds interacting. My opinion is that's fine, but, you know, that That's not the primary reason in the real world we need affirmative action. That's what we have to, you know, I've worked a lot on defending affirmative action legally. So I focus on the diversity arguments. That's what the courts can listen to, but we have a broader need uh, for affirmative action.
0: Well, following up on on that in in, in an earlier uh,
2: conversation
0: uh, that uh, that you had uh, at the University of North Carolina, which is right up the street uh, from us, Uh, where there is not a large number of uh, of Asian uh, students uh, present because uh, there is a small number of Asians in this uh, population. Uh, What are the particular claims there as to uh, discrimination and how does that differ from the situation that's presented in uh, the Harvard case?
2: So University of North Carolina Uh, The first argument that I mentioned in the Harvard case where, uh, you know, the first part of the argument SFFA made was simply that Asian Americans are discriminated against with respect to white students. Uh, No talk in that, just the first part of the argument about black Latino Native American students. University of North Carolina case uh, does not have that part of the argument. It's a straight challenge to the way that the university of North Carolina is uh, using race in its, in its admissions policy. They're saying, you know, Uh, that they're using race to a a greater extent than the court has allowed, that they're engaging in, you know, what's called, quote, unquote, what they call racial balancing, which, you know, they're saying it's effectively like a quota. They're saying that there are other ways that University of North Carolina can attain racial diversity. So one of the other things I should mention that the court said in Grutter was, you know, if you can get that racial diversity for the educational benefits that, uh, you know, the university is allowed to pursue, if you can get that, without explicitly considering applicants race, you have to do that. If there's a a race neutral way to do it, if you do it by considering socioeconomic status, uh, or other policies that look at disadvantage, you, you have to do that. So a big part of the argument is also University of North Carolina can use these race neutral alternatives, that there are other ways that they can get racial diversity without explicitly considering race. So the North Carolina challenge is a straight up Uh, you know, uh, Grutter, you know, uh, the University of North Carolina is not following Grutter. Although I should note what I'm talking about here is how they brought the case at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court can do anything. So so they're actually telling the Supreme Court to overrule Grutter and say race cannot be used at all. Uh, So that's how they built the case by challenging University of North Carolina under the Grutter standard that I noted earlier. But at the Supreme Court, they're saying Grutter should be overruled. It was wrongly decided. Uh, You know, they want the Supreme Court to do the same thing with Grutter that it did with Roe v. Wade. Hmm.
0: And there's a possibility of that.
2: uh, I would say a likelihood, very likely that it will happen given the current composition of the Supreme Court.
0: Well, with that, can you kind of talk about the the new Supreme Court and the conservative uh, bent? Uh, mm-hmm. on the uh, court uh, as it relates to its politics and its uh, philosophy. And then uh, as you uh, look at the fact that uh, in the Grutter and uh, Fisher cases, uh, you had 5-4 uh, mm-hmm. decisions. Uh, and uh, how do you see uh, these cases going uh, with the uh, current uh, Supreme Court?
2: So, uh... You know, between the Fisher case, uh, the last case in 2016 and now, we had two appointments that really moved the court in a conservative uh, direction. Justice Kennedy, who was the swing justice, who wrote the 5-4 opinion in, in Fisher, uh, retired and Brett Kavanaugh uh, replaced him. Uh, I said two appointments, really three appointments. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, uh, before that even, when Justice Scalia died, uh, you may remember, uh Obama tried to fill the seat uh, with Merrick Garland, and the Republican-controlled Senate refused to confirm Merrick Garland. So when Trump was elected, he appointed Neil Gorsuch, and then Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, most recently, passed away uh, right before Trump's term ended, and they appointed uh, Amy Coney Barrett. So you know, we had three uh, replacement, uh, three replacement justices that moved the court in a conservative direction. Uh, Now, when Justice Stephen Breyer retired recently, uh, President Biden appointed Ketanji Brown Jackson, which I mean, uh, she may be, we'll find out a bit more liberal uh, on a broad range of issues, but that was a vote for affirmative action. Justice Breyer who retired uh, was a vote for affirmative action. So if she votes for affirmative action, it doesn't change the balance of the court. I should also note uh, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson uh, will be recused from the Harvard case also. She recused herself because she's been on the Harvard Board of Directors and has had other involvement in the university. Uh, so we've had a, a strong shift uh, towards the right uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I think most people are predicting, including me, that it will be a 6-3 decision uh, against affirmative action. Uh, you know, the three justices, uh, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson in the North Carolina case, will vote for affirmative action. The other six will vote against it. In the Harvard case, it'll be six to two because Ketanji Brown Jackson is uh, is recused. And I think what's uh, you know what what will be interesting to a scholar like me, you know, I mean, I'm kind of an advocate on this issue, but also a scholar. So as an advocate, of course, I want affirmative action upheld. But just looking at it, kind of detached as a scholar, the most interesting issue is going to be what the breakdown among the six conservative justices is. How many of them will vote to overturn Bruder? Uh, you know, uh, will there be, maybe they don't overturn Guder, but they just uh, say Harvard's and UNC's plans are unconstitutional, maybe make it even more narrow, uh, you know, say they're using race too much. What's going to be the breakdown there is, is I think, the uh, interesting, kind of a scholarly perspective, the interesting issue.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, um, yeah. So as far as like, that's my, my you know, kind of reading as well. I think anyone who kind of studies the court and, and has followed um, the, the trends. Um, can you talk though about, you mentioned already that UNC, because it is a state institution, um, the challenge is being brought under the 14th Amendment. And then you have Harvard, which is a private institution. Uh, and that's being, that's a, a statutory challenge. Can you talk about um, how... Harvard, even though it's a private institution, it's still, there can still be constitutional-like arguments that that are raised.
2: Yeah, um, you know, private institutions receive uh, federal funding. So there has been kind of an argument made that, you know, uh, equal protection, 14th Amendment extends uh, to Harvard. And, and, you know, elite universities receive a lot of federal funding, a lot of grant money, and other things. Uh, but the real hook for Harvard is the statutory Title uh, Title VI claim under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, because the Supreme Court has essentially suggested very strongly that the uh, titles, uh, Title Title VI prohibits anything that the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment would prohibit. So, for you know, for practical purposes, there really is not a difference between the Harvard case and the UNC Chapel Hill case, uh, at least as we understand the doctrine now. Most uh, you know. Most experts, again, uh, that is not a distinction. You know, as far as uh, mm. you know, we believe the court will rule that will be really, really significant because the law is very similar uh, under the two. Uh, where it could make a subtle difference is in the writing of the opinion. Uh, Title VI has explicit language about you know uh, institutions that receive federal funding uh, cannot discriminate, it, quote unquote, on the ground of race. Equal protection is kind of a more doctrinal, you know, the 14th Amendment doesn't have the word race in it. But someone like Anil Gorsuch really hooks on the text. He's a hardcore textualist. Uh, If you think uh, a couple of years ago, the Bostock v. Clayton County decision, which involved Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, employment discrimination. Mm -hmm. Uh, Title VII has, uh, you know, uh, words, you cannot discriminate because of sex. He interpreted sex really broadly. Sex includes gender identity, includes LGBT protection. So that was a progressive ruling. But if he's gonna interpret sex like that, he's gonna interpret race like that also. Anything that has anything to do with race is illegal. You know, So it's almost, it's ironic there. Uh, so if Harvard really, you know, if, if Title VI really determines what's going on here, if that's where the court focuses and you know, kind of uses that to define equal protection, uh, or such as textualism, if, he, if that's what the focus is, uh, may mold how the cases turn out, but as we look at it now, uh, you know uh, there is really you know no doctrinal functional difference between the Title VI and the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, mm-hmm. Essentially, you know uh, we're not predicting anything different is going to happen because of that.
1: Now I, I want to circle back to something that I had um, started to ask you about. We we have a situation where you've got um, groups that that are being disadvantaged and they're being pitted against each other in this litigation. What are your thoughts about how to address the issue where um, Asian-Americans are being discriminated against? Yet, as you so eloquently put, there is a need for affirmative action for um, historical reasons, for diversity reasons. How do we address this issue without kind of blowing up affirmative action in this context when it is vitally needed?
2: Yeah, that is the $64 million question, the big conundrum here. I should note that in spite of all of this, and in spite of, you know, the history that I alluded to, uh, surveys show that about 70%, 75% of Asian Americans actually support affirmative action, uh, because they understand that, you know, uh, there's a whole history of discrimination. There's current discrimination. You know, we are a society that has not eliminated racism by any means. Uh, so they understand there's parallels between the, uh, racist experiences that they face and what other groups uh, face also. Uh, Nevertheless, there has been kind of a growing number of Asian American organizations that seem to align with the conservative movement here to eliminate affirmative action. Uh, The most established Asian American civil rights organizations have always supported affirmative action, worked uh, with uh, advocates for affirmative action. But there is, you know, this issue is getting more publicity uh, with SFFA Uh, a lot of things going on, but I really think the common ground of, you know, racism is where we need to focus. Uh, You know, both groups, you know, you think about uh, Asian Americans and how Asian Americans are stereotyped. Uh, You think about how say African Americans are stereotyped. You see kind of polar opposite stereotypes. Asian Americans are thought of as great students academically, great, the model minority, but socially kind of, uh, you know, passive, not leadership material, Kind of these dry, you know, and I write about this, these dry passive, quote unquote, passive nerds, you know, one dimensional. And that has come up in the Harvard litigation. You know, that has come up because Harvard considers personal qualities uh, and all of those issues in their admissions process. African-Americans, of course, uh, stereotyped in very different ways, you know, uh, not thought of as academic high achieving, academic low achievers, you know, physically threatening, you know, all the uh, all the cases of, of police brutality, that kind of stuff that we see. Uh, so it's like, who's in the middle? You know, this nice white ideal. How's this whole issue being framed? And I think we really need to focus on that. We really need to highlight that. We need to bring out, and I'm glad, you know, you're asking me a lot of questions about Asian Americans, because we need to highlight the discrimination against Asian Americans. Uh, you know, it seems like if you do that, and I'm, I try to be really careful about that, that seems like it could support SFFA, but if we articulate it in the right way, you know, if we show it as a kind of broader uh, broader part of American racialization of the way our racial hierarchy is set up I think that's how we see uh see the common ground well when
0: you when you look at the the way that the 14th amendment has been applied uh, through the years and most recently uh, justice uh, Roberts talked about uh, the notion that the best way to uh, not discriminate uh, is not to uh, discriminate uh, does not the affirmative action concept set up a situation where there is a favoritism that is uh, shown to a uh, racial minority uh, in the uh, admissions uh, process?
2: Yeah, the court in recent years, as it became more conservative, has kind of adopted uh, the majority of the justices, uh, the, the view that you talked about, uh, Justice Roberts's view, that there really is no difference under the equal protection clause between policies that say are are designed to benefit underrepresented groups like affirmative action, and policies that discriminate against uh, underrepresented groups like de jure segregation. You know, it's ironic uh, that uh, the court took Brown v. Board of Education and said, you know, uh, Brown v. Board of Education struck down school segregation. Uh, and, uh, you know, the mandate of Brown, initially, the court was saying, is to affirmatively desegregate schools, you know, mm-hmm. uh, through busing, through uh, other policies. But now it said the mandate of Brown is to not use race at all for anything. It was the elimination <laughs> of, of race. And, you know, if you look at the Supreme Court precedents, the cases, you can always cherry pick language that suggests that, you know, we shouldn't look at race at all. Court is kind of drawn on that language and basically said there's no difference at all using race anyway whether the intention uh, is to uh, help benefit historically underrepresented groups by having you know some consideration of race uh, some positive effect there no difference between that and racial segregation which i think is kind of preposterous but that's where the uh, court has gone really for the last 40 45 years or so mm-hmm.
1: And that ties directly into and I feel like I mentioned this or every show <laughs> about you know no knowing, knowing your history. It's like if you don't understand the history of racism and discrimination in this country, then then you may not fully appreciate why there is a remedial need for affirmative action and and there's a, of course, a concerted effort to try and prevent the teaching of this country's history um this country also has a history of favoring white people. And so when we talk about affirmative action, and you mentioned that when we use this phrase affirmative action, we're, we most often think about it in the context of um, focusing on race and, and making sure that that's taken t- into account. But there's affirmative action at Harvard and at UNC and, and these other elite universities that that focus on white folks. Can you talk a little bit about uh, affirmative action, these legacy programs, and what role that plays and how that needs to be part of this conversation as well, especially when we're talking about, you know, the common ground that we can, you know, come together on and, and fight this issue without pitting two groups against or or various groups against each other. But we're going to have to take a quick break. So we will have you share your thoughts on that when we come back. You are listening to The Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have here with us in our Zoom studio, Dr. Vinay Harpalani, who is a professor of law at the University of New Mexico School of Law. And we've been talking this hour about affirmative action in the college and university admissions process. There are two cases that will be heard by the Supreme Court in October, on October 31st. And so we wanted to have a discussion about these two important cases and the impact on affirmative action going forward. So we hope you stay with us, we'll be right back.
3: Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in Civil Rights and Constitutional Law, Dispute Resolution, Tax Law, or Justice in the Practice of Law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to The Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking this hour with Dr. Vinay Harpalani. He is a professor of law at the University of New Mexico School of Law and a scholar in many subjects, including affirmative action related to the university admissions process. So uh, Dr. Harpalani, right before the break, I was asking you to um, share your thoughts on affirmative action that benefits white people. Um, and, and as you talk about it, when we think about legacy admissions decisions, can you also kind of talk about the um, inaccurate assumption that if a uh, black or Latino student is admitted um, under an affirmative action program that that they are not um, prepared or they haven't earned their spot as you kind of contrast that to the legacy admissions?
2: Sure. Uh, uh, you know, legacy admissions, uh, giving uh, preference to children of alumni uh, are a big part of admissions at uh, most elite institutions. Uh, at Harvard, a uh, more greater uh, percentage of there is a greater percentage of legacy admissions than there are beneficiaries uh, of affirmative action. And, uh, you know, you think about the history of Harvard. Harvard has a long history. For many years, Harvard was explicitly discriminating on the basis of race, was allowed to, you know, there are different incidents that show discrimination against, uh, you know, different uh, Asian Americans, uh, other groups, uh, you know, Jewish uh, students dating back. But a large overwhelming percentage of Harvard alumni are Rich white people, right? That's where that's uh, who's historically uh, been admitted and uh, allowed to go to Harvard. So, of course, the children of alumni are going to be largely white, you know, Mm. large bias towards uh, white students. And if you're giving alumni preferences, uh, that is going to benefit white uh, students more than uh, anyone else. Uh, And those preferences, I mean, uh, most students, just about everyone who gets into Harvard, has great academic potentials. You know, just being a child of alumni itself. Is not going to get you into Harvard, but uh, just being Black, Latino, uh, Native American is not going to get you into Harvard. Uh, you know, you have to be an outstanding student, and that makes you know race can make a little difference. Legacy admissions might make even a, a greater difference, particularly if you have like someone who's a huge donor. You know, there's also kind of uh, donor preferences, so it might make an even bigger difference. But for the most part, the qualifications of these students are not really the issue. They can all succeed at Harvard because it's so hard to get into uh, uh, anyway. Uh, SFFA ironically makes the argument about legacy admissions. I I mentioned that the first part of their argument was all about uh, how white Americans are favored, respect to Asian Americans, and they talk about legacy admissions. But that is uh, misleading, deceitful, because there is no law that prohibits Harvard or other universities from using legacy admissions. Equal Protection Clause uh, and Title VI apply to the explicit use of race. You know, if I'm looking at your race directly, then I have to follow these legal guidelines. Legacy admissions are correlated highly with race because of the history of Harvard. Uh, but there are legacy—you know—there are legacies that uh, children uh, of black alumni, there are some of Asian American alumni who can also benefit from legacy preferences. It's a much—you know—that's where these groups are underrepresented—you know, Asian Americans, Black Americans. But because it's not explicitly racial, because not every—you uh, know—every uh, person who's an alumni is white. Uh, because race is not the factor that's being considered its legacy. There is no legal challenge there. There is political pressure, and some universities have, have done this, to eliminate legacy preferences because of the very reason that they favor rich white folks. So there is some uh, political pressure there, but there's not a legal challenge uh, to be brought against that. So SFFA's use of that issue is misleading because they can sue to eliminate race, but there's no lawsuit to eliminate legacy, you know, there's a lot of talk here, but there's not not a, a legal challenge. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, if 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 the court does as you suggest, and as we believe, uh, reject Gruta and the uh, uh, the mandate uh, from Gruta or the permission from Gruta, what will be the impact or the effects of this? in the uh, admission process going forward?
2: Uh, The projections show, and there is debate about this in the case, uh, but uh, most uh, people who have studied this issue say there'll be a drop in the number of black Latino native uh, students, particularly at elite universities, places like Harvard, places like UNC Chapel Hill, which are hard to get into the public university. There'll be a a drop there. What the uh, SFFA and their experts argue is well, Harvard can make up. UNC can make up for that drop by doing other things, by looking at socioeconomic status. Uh, for UNC, you know, the argument is also it's a public university. They can, you know, just use class rank. Um, and some schools are predominantly black, so most of the students will get in, if the school is 95% black, uh, if you use say the top 10% of the class and, and admit that most of those students from that particular school are going to be black. Um, so, you know, part of the argument is. Uh, that you can you can do something, you can use other factors to make up for race. But, um, you know, most experts say, you know, how's a private university like Harvard going to have, uh, you know, uh, where are they going to admit uh, students based on class rank from the whole country? They can't do that. Uh, debate there. But uh, elite <coughs> universities, most experts say the numbers will drop. Now, your more mid-tier universities, uh, they may... "Quote unquote," benefit from that because the students who could were going to Harvard may go to say a, a <laughs> university that's not as highly ranked or competitive, so they may get more students. It's hard to say. they are all about statistical projections here. It also depends on how Harvard uh, changes its admissions policy if it does. Uh, during the COVID nineteen pandemic, Harvard made standardized tests, uh, you know, optional for admissions or or suspended their use actually. Uh, so standardized testing. Uh, area that can be a barrier to the admission of underrepresented students. Uh, and there's a movement to uh, basically have universities stop using standardized tests. So if a policy like that is put in place, that might make up uh, for the use of race to an extent, but that also you know, uh, forces Harvard to look at the admissions process, reconceptualize it in, in different ways. Uh, so uh, I guess the bottom line is really it depends on what these universities do with their admissions process processes. Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, the impact of a court decision that's anticipated, as you noted, will result in a drop of black and Latino students at these um, you know institutions. And as someone who is a double HBCUer, right? So my undergraduate institution, been at college, HBCU, I went to Howard Law School, HBCU, I teach at a wonderful institution, of course, NCCU. Um, and so I'm a proponent of HBCUs. And I have encouraged my children to go to HBCUs. Some of them have, some of them have chosen to go to predominantly white institutions. Um, And so even within my circle, we talk about um, where black students should land. Um, I am not of the belief that every student needs to go to an HBCU. Every Black student, I think every Black student should consider. But there is a lot to be said about making sure that we are represented, Black and Latino students, and represented in all spaces. Um, can you talk about the value of having, value for the student to go to Harvard. So we've talked about the benefit of affirmative action is that you've got diversity in these places. Um, What are the the benefits that one might get from a Harvard um, that they would not be able to get if affirmative action wasn't still in place?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, HBCUs historically have been, you know, really important. I mean, obviously the only institutions where black people could be educated for you know, a number of, a number of years and i think you know uh, it's really an individualized choice this is about choice right uh, some black students may decide based on their own experiences they want to go to hbcu others may decide you know uh, you know because of what we've experienced already or or what we think would be best for us it might be uh, good for us to be in, in a more elite predominantly white environment benefits of going to harvard you know why might a student make that choice uh, harvard has a lot more resources than you know any HBCU, and you know some HBCUs have had challenges, funding challenges. Um, you know um, I think individual students have to choose whether uh, that they would benefit from the supportive environment that comes in HBCU. Uh, some of them may really need that. Others, uh, you know, uh, they're trying to do uh, become part of different networks. Uh, uh, become world leaders, leaders in business. That's the kind of thing that Harvard provides. You look at the Supreme Court, a lot of the Supreme Court justices went to Harvard, a lot of people who are in very influential spaces. And to have broader change in our society, we need representation in those spaces. You need, you know, Black people in those powerful positions uh, to be able to make changes. I think, you know, the Biden administration. You see, you know, he promised to appoint a lot more Black people to uh, different positions. Has appointed a lot of Black judges uh, in the lower courts. Appointed Ketanji Brown Jackson. So benefits of Harvard, and this also speaks to as a society, you know, how we look at those positions, how much we favor people from elite institutions in those types of positions. Um, I think building the networks. Part of the benefit of going to Harvard is not just the academic education you, you receive; it's who you get to meet. Uh, you know, becoming part of of those circles, which allow you to get into those high, powerful uh, positions. So I think HBCUs are wonderful institutions. You know, I want to emphasize that. I think, you know, they produce more black doctors, lawyers than any other institutions and, you know, provide that supportive environment. Uh, But the pipeline to the most powerful positions in our, our country, unfortunately, goes through very elite, predominantly white institutions.
1: Yeah, and that whole point about the the network, um, and and of course we've got a very strong alumni network. We've got um, folks at all levels, um, but there is something to be said to your point about you know being in the room, being at the table, um, and if we don't have representation there, it's just going to continue this cycle. Right, and so yeah, I'm. I definitely push for us to be in all in all places.
0: Something that is always uh, very uh, important uh, to us. Do do you, do you see any adverse impact on the HBCU from a uh, overruling of uh, of Gruta, or are there benefits uh, to uh, HBCU that will accrue as a result of a uh, a decision that uh, undermines group.
2: It's you know it's interesting and ironic in some ways. I think not only affirmative action, but all of the attacks on quote unquote critical race theory, on just you know uh, multicultural education, on teaching about racism, anti-racist education, the whole climate in this country uh, since Donald Trump was elected uh, in 2016, and even before that, it's been going in a direction. Where it seems like predominantly white institutions are just more hostile. There's a more hostile uh, climate on campus towards black students. And I think, you know, uh, we've heard more about HBCUs in recent years. I think black students may choose to a greater extent to go to HBCUs to have that supportive environment uh, where they're around people uh, who've had similar experiences, who look like themselves, who have, you know, similar views. I mean, there's a lot of diversity. I want to emphasize that at HBCUs also, you know. uh, Black people in this country come from all different environments, and I think HBCUs benefit from the same type of diversity that we talked about in predominantly white institutions. Nevertheless, there are commonalities. There is, you know, a, an explicit emphasis on HBCUs on supporting Black students. You know, it's kind of like a family environment in many ways, and that's beneficial. So I think, um, you know, ironically, with these cases and with the broader climate in, in, uh, in the U.S. more generally. Uh, there may be more focus on that benefit. Uh, black students may choose to go to HBCUs uh, more. Um, you know how we, how that benefits the institution more broadly. It's it's ironic again. Sometimes you have conservatives supporting HBCUs simply because they don't want the integration quite as much um, for different reasons. Um, uh, so I think it's a it's a bit unpredictable because if you have a broader environment uh, in the U.S. where that's hostile. To race consciousness at all that you know is allowing more instances of racism, you know, uh, kind of promoting them. Uh, I think you know, as as Trump and others have, uh, that maybe motivates more black students to go to HBCUs. But in that broader climate, what are they, their their experiences going to be like once they leave those HBC HBCUs? Um, so could be complicated.
1: Yeah, and I think it goes to your point about choice. Right, we want to, you know, we we want to be able to make a choice, um, and and we should not be excluded from spaces where um, power is generated and exercised, and that's what you know this litigation is is attempting to do. So you know, folks are perfectly fine for all black students to go to HBCUs, uh, but what that does is it prevents us from being sometimes in those other places of power. Um, And we have, of course, wonderful allies. So, you know, Irv Joyner, right? Who was not um, uh, a direct beneficiary of of an HBCU as a student, but he is one of our fiercest advocates and and we need to be in all places. So we've got just a few minutes left. Um, What are your thoughts about the next, challenge that we can see coming. So, of course, as you noted, the organization that is spearheading these lawsuits, this is a concerted, conservative political effort to do away with affirmative action. Um, Even though they were not successful in 2016 with uh, Fisher, we anticipate that they will be successful now based on the changes to the Supreme Court. What's the next step in terms of challenges to um, programs that allow for more diversity in our country.
2: So what you're seeing already in a number of different places, number of different uh, cities, uh, are challenges to, or, or uh, uh, basically I should I should step back a little bit here. A uh, number of cities, you have magnet high schools, uh, magnet public high schools, which are set up, uh, which are uh, intended for students who are high achievers, say in middle school, you know, you have students from uh, uh, maybe under underrepresented uh, backgrounds. Uh, one of the ways that they've been able to get into a place like Harvard is to go to a magnet high school, which primes them for the academic success uh, that uh, will allow them to be at a place like uh, Harvard. And historically, that's also been one kind of path of desegregation um, that, you know, these uh, students get to go to this magnet school and, they, and they, uh, that will prepare them for more uh, elite Competitive uh, uh, institution of higher education. Uh, Magnet schools were set up in the era of desegregation going back to the 60s, 70s. But with the increase in uh, Asian American uh, population uh, since that time, uh, you have more Asian Americans at these magnet schools. Asian Americans are more uh, represented at magnet schools than even at Harvard. Um, You know, uh, children of immigrants, as I noted, uh, you know, uh, may have certain. Certain socialization at home. If they're children of educated immigrants, immigrants also, uh, you know, kind of have this drive to succeed. You know, different uh, ways uh, that parents emphasize that. Uh, you know, uh, uh, test prep classes, etc. Uh, so uh, there's been kind of a, a concern about that, uh, and you've seen a number of different cities. Uh, New York City is a well-known case. Try to change admissions policies to their magnet high schools, the selective schools in New York City. Uh, to have a greater representation of Black and Latino students, because that was the intent, right, of magnet schools. But that's fallen off in recent years. Uh, black Latino students are underrepresented at those schools. Asian Americans have wide uh, representation. White students somewhere in the middle. Uh, so there's been a movement to change those admissions policies. Uh, say standardized tests. You know, getting rid of a standardized test, which uh, you know, uh, Black Latino students score lower on, Asian Americans score higher on. But there's also the accusation that this is partly motivated by animus against Asian American students. You know, the white students, others don't want as many Asian Americans because it's taking away spots from them. Uh, so lawsuit around this uh, at uh, in Fairfax County, Virginia, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, number one rated public school in the country uh, by U.S. News and World Report. Uh, but if you looked at the class of 2019. Uh, close to 70%, over 70% of the students who were admitted were Asian-Americans, even though the population of Fairfax County is much less, maybe 15% or so. Uh, so Asian-Americans going through this competitive admissions in middle school, doing really well on the tests and other things. Uh, black, Latino students highly underrepresented at those schools. White students, again, somewhere in the middle. Fairfax County was concerned about this. You know, 2020, uh, with the murder of George Floyd, there was a lot of discussion about racial inequity. Um, so county changed its admissions policy, lawsuit filed, you know, they kind of got rid of the standardized test, lawsuit was filed, uh, that basically said they changed it because they don't want so many Asian Americans there, because getting rid of the standardized test, uh, Asian American population dropped from 70 to 50%, still a lot, uh, but lawsuit filed around that. And that lawsuit is different because taking away a standardized test is not considering, you know, it's not explicitly considering race race was not considered in the Thomas Jefferson High School policy. So basically, the lawsuit is about whether you can even do something like t- take away standardized tests or change your admissions policy in a way that will negatively impact one group, which goes a step further even than the Harvard case. That case is still in the lower courts, in the Fourth Circuit, might wake it- make its way to the Supreme Court. But it also shows how SFFA's argument that you know uh, they want Harvard, uh, UNC to use race-neutral alternatives. That's kind of disingenuous, also, because the next challenge that's coming up is a challenge to anything race-neutral uh, that aims to increase diversity. You know, even if it doesn't explicitly consider an applicant's race. So a lot going on here.
1: Well, all right. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and helping us better understand these cases and um, and this issue. But we are out of time. We're gonna to have to have you back on the show to talk more about these um, very important issues surrounding affirmative action. We had with us, have with us as our guest, Dr. Vinay Harpalani. He is a professor of law at the University of New Mexico School of Law. We wanna thank you as well, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions, please send us an email at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you missed this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.